My name is Jonathan Isaac, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Ronda Rousey was an undefeated UFC champion when she was knocked out by Holly Holm. Appearing a couple months later on the Ellen DeGeneres show, she told Ellen that after the fight, she'd been completely lost. She didn't know who she was now that she wasn't a champion anymore. She thought she was worthless. And in that moment, Ronda Rousey lost the will to live. Everyone builds their identity on something. Maybe your identity is rooted in having good kids or in your career or your appearance, or being the smartest person in the room, or being a good athlete, or even your religious devotion. If something comes along and threatens your identity, like losing that fight did for Ronda Rousey, for example, if your kids go in a bad direction, or if you get fired, or make a bad business decision, well, then your life starts to crumble. You get stressed and anxious. When he was 19 years old, the Orlando Magic chose Jonathan Isaac with the sixth pick in the 2017 NBA Draft. He's an up-and-coming superstar in the league, as demonstrated by his four-year contract, reportedly worth $70 million, not including incentives. But it turns out that Jonathan Isaac is a lot like you and me. He struggled with building his identity on trying to fit in, first as a cool kid and then as a great athlete. The pressure to perform led him to panic attacks and even a trip to the hospital. Jonathan tells his story in his new book, Why I Stand. The title of the book refers to his choice to stand during the national anthem when the rest of the NBA was kneeling in response to George Floyd's death. How did the anxious kid, who was eager to fit in, get the courage to stand alone during a moment when the whole world was watching? Let's find out. Jonathan Isaac, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Man, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Man, I read your book, Why I Stand, and it's, of course, the story of why you stood during the national anthem while all your teammates were kneeling. But I thought the book was about a lot more than just that. It was about you becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ, getting involved in this Christian community that encouraged you. You met your wife through that how you dealt with anxiety that you'd had since childhood. I mean, there's so much in this story that I think everybody can identify with. So if it's okay with you, I just want to start at the beginning. When you were telling about how you grew up, I love your dad. I don't know why, but I just thought he seemed like a really great dude. Can you tell us about where you grew up and your family and kind of where your life started? Yeah, I grew up in Bronx, New York, and big shout out to Pops, man. He was great. My parents had split up when I was 10, but for those first 10 years, we were together. My mom, my dad, four brothers and one sister in Bronx, New York. We were in church like 
every other day. You know, he had us learning scriptures and whole Psalms and all those things to just keep us grounded and just teaching us. Yeah, we had fun and my life kind of gets flipped upside down once we move from New York to Naples, Florida with my mom. Yeah, but he seems like a good guy. You said you called him your Superman. Yeah. And he worked as, I guess, a manager. I'm not exactly sure what, at the McDonald's in Times Square. What was that like? Yeah, he worked as a manager at the McDonald's in Times Square. It was, you know, it, it wasn't anything. It wasn't weird, even especially as I detail in the book about us having to stay the night at McDonald's from time to time because he was working the late shift. My mom was working and no one was able to take us to school in the morning because of when he'd get off and when my mom would get off. And so we would have to sleep at the McDonald's with him while he's working overnight. But for us, we, we were just kids. And so it was like, oh, we get to sleep at McDonald's. That's a blast. <laughs> and so we had a lot of fun. But, you know, being able to look back, it was it was definitely you know, hard times. Well, the thing about it is I was reading the story and I just loved your family, not just your dad, but your mom. You got this big family just working hard, trying to do the right thing, being in church that I was really personally disappointed when I found out that your family split up. I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That had to be hard on you, was it? I mean, when you moved, I know that you encountered some new people and that was a hard transition, but that split in your family, that's hard. It was hard. And it was hard in ways that I really wasn't able to describe at the moment. It was something that I learned more about myself as I grew up and started to see the signs of not having my dad in my life in the same way that he was before. But yeah, it was tough. And, you know, it did suck, but it was almost like, my parents and with us being in school, they were working so hard just to keep everything together and keep us in church and all these different things that they had a lot of underlying differences and situations that went on that kind of just led to this big split between my mom and my dad. And so she took us and we went to Naples, Florida and me trying to early on trying to fit in and get these new kids to like me from, a, you know, going from a black community to a white community. It was really tough. And there's a couple of stories in the beginning that shows just how tough it was for me to fit in. And that was the first time that I developed a sense of self-awareness, like, okay, like an anxiety and fear about being rejected and wanting people to like me. And so that's where the anxiety and that self-insecurity started. Man, so many people deal with these kind of mental health issues and anxiety is such a common thing that people struggle with. And so when you look back on your life, you think the anxiety started with trying to fit in and get other people to approve of you. Is that right? I mean, can you identify what led to the anxiety starting to grow? Yeah, I think it was exactly that. You know, growing up in New York first, you know, I grew up the same way that everybody grew up around me. And so our peers were the same. We acted the same. We were very aggressive and horseplay and all these things. And I just pretty much was immersed super quickly at 10 years old into a different culture in a different place in the way people did things. I came in like, okay, you know, I'm a kid here. Let's have fun. But, you know, I wasn't initially accepted or I wasn't the best at trying to get other kids to like me. And so that's definitely where that anxiety and kind of self-awareness started. I think that first story about me being in the principal's office and my mom being called and the principal being terrified for the other kids when I just wanted to play. And that was like the first time I'm being like shrinking back into myself and saying, oh man, I'm not doing this the right way. And that's definitely where it started. Yeah. When you start feeling like you're the other, you're the outsider, you're the one that everybody's scared of. I mean, that would be incredibly hard on all of us. So you start playing basketball, but it's just in the YMCA. You're just playing there and some people take notice of you that you're pretty good or at least have potential. And you join this travel team and you get kicked off the travel team, right? I mean, you don't even tell the story in the book. You're like, no, it's so embarrassing. I guess you won't even tell the story. But can you imagine being the coach that kicked off sixth round draft pick in the NBA draft off their travel team? What, what was up with that? Were you that bad? 
I was. And so I think early on, I was just like, well, it is what it is. Maybe this basketball thing isn't necessarily for me, but, you know, I had a quick turnaround with finding another coach that really took an interest in my development. But yeah, it was weird because I know I had messed up on that tournament. I know I had lost the game for us in a really bad way. But yeah, it's just my ride just stopped picking me up for practice. And then I got the (laughs) message, but it all worked out. It's pretty brutal, though. I mean, they just stop picking you up. They don't even have the courage to tell you that you're kicked off. You're just out. And so did you just think about quitting, like walking away from basketball? Or I guess enough people rallied around you at the time to keep you going. Well, I loved basketball, not even in the playing sense, but I loved the game and just the art of it all. And so I was still around it and still playing with my older brother, Jacob. And that's when my cousin that was already in Florida, who was around my age, told me about the travel team that he was on. And that's when I got hooked up to Bora. One of the things that is a theme in your book is that there were people who took an interest in you and invested in you. Coach Bora that you just mentioned, Dennis Gates becomes a key figure in your life. Ron, your mom's boyfriend. I guess, what would you say to men and how they can have an influence in young kids' lives? Because I don't think you'd be where you are today if these other men hadn't come along and encouraged you and come alongside and built a relationship with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's exactly what you said. I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have these different people who saw greatness in me when I didn't see it in myself. And especially coming from a broken household where my dad wasn't in my life anymore, I really didn't have that strong male figure or sounding board. I was dealing with everything that I was feeling and going through in my own mind. And so to have these different guys, Coach Bora, Gates and Ron, like take an interest in me and really just want to develop me and pour into me. It was everything. Almost like it got me to the next stage and next level of my life. And ultimately, Doc is the one who just takes it away later in the book. But I would say to men that just do it, you know, find young men and individuals around you in your community, in your church that you can take an interest in and just build them up because it's something that I really did need. Well, it's like none of these guys were perfect. I think so many of us are afraid to mentor a kid or take an interest in a kid because we know our own faults, our own frailties. We're not perfect. So who would we be to take on somebody else? But, you know, like Ron, he had his faults, but he wasn't a perfect guy. But he took an interest in you, spent money that he didn't have, drove you to tournaments. Do you still have a relationship with him? Absolutely. So I still talk to Ron from time to time. And just as a thank you, you know, he was doing his nursing school thing and I paid all of his tuition. That's cool. How he invested in me, but none of them were perfect. You know, Coach Gates, Ron, Bora, none of it. And so I think that that shouldn't be an excuse to stop you from investing in the young men that are around you. And they need you because they're not perfect either. None of us are perfect. And so I see them for how they invested in me and not for their faults. So this anxiety thing started when you moved to Naples, I think, and it kind of stayed with you. The way I read the book, if I read it right, is that you started getting your identity from basketball and therefore you put all kinds of pressure on yourself. What was that like? What was going on in your head during those basketball games? What kind of pressure did you put on yourself? Immense pressure. And because basketball for me, it really was my identity. It was the only thing that I saw in myself as good and worthy. And so as I started to play basketball and I started to develop the friendships that I wanted in the beginning, it kind of showed me that It's not me that people like or that people want. It's the fact that I can play ball and no knock on them, like even family, like even as I begin to grow as a basketball player, like the interest for my family and excitement and all those stuff started to come around. Girls started to like me because of the basketball player that I was. And so it was so easy for me to attach my worth to the game. And I think that's something that we all do in one way or another until we're able to find our identity in Christ. And so it was tough. I put so much pressure on myself because I always felt that if I didn't perform on the court, then I would lose 
all of the love and attention that I had gained through becoming a good basketball player. And so it just, on one hand, it forced me to work really hard and to become a great basketball player. But at the same time, I still had these underlying fears and anxieties that I was dealing with that basketball couldn't sustain. Yeah, I think everybody can identify with that. Maybe it's not basketball. Maybe it's being the smartest guy in the room. Maybe it's having a great family. Maybe it's career success. There's so many things that we build our identity on. And as long as we're building identity on something that we can lose, we're always going to be insecure. We're always going to worry. We're always going to be scared. Now, you mentioned you want to build your identity on Christ. So help us understand what you mean by that, because that's not language that all of us use or are comfortable with. Yeah, the way that I would say it was like the thing that drew me to Christ, or we can get to it later, but the thing that opened my eyes and helped me to breathe for the first time and relax and not have that anxiety so profusely was the fact that God loved me for me. It wasn't love that I had to perform for. It wasn't love that I had to do anything for. It was just constant and unconditional. And so as I started to say, you know what, it's not about what other people say about me. It's about what God says about me. And I'm going to focus on those truths. I'm going to build who I am on the solid rock of his word and what he says about me and his love for me. And that will help mitigate a lot of the fears and anxieties and insecurities that I was walking around with, because at the end of the day, we all have them. And so nobody's perfect. Nobody's 100% all the way there. And so I was able to say, you know what, there's grace and mercy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to focus on. And so I was able to start to grow and walk on the court and say, I don't care if I make or miss this shot. God still loves me. And I still have people in my life that love me. So there just wasn't so much pressure on me. And it's something that I'm continuing to grow in and mature in. But I would say that's to me what finding an identity in Christ is. It's taking what he says about you in his word over what the world has to say or what you have to say for that matter. Okay, so I want to get back to this story here in a second, but let's keep going down this anxiety route because I think, again, so many of us can identify with it. You're building your identity on trying to fit in in Naples. Well, that kind of works somewhat, but not others. You find that it mainly works when you're good at basketball. So now people like you, but they only like you, at least in the way you interpret it, as long as you keep doing well on the court. Well, okay, now I could lose that because I have a bad game or things don't turn out as well for me on one particular night. And all of a sudden, that thing you're building your identity on collapses. So you end up becoming a Christian. I want to talk about that in a second, but you end up becoming a Christian and you start finding that your identity is found in God's love for you, not in your performance. But that doesn't just change overnight, right? Because you even talk about you're in the NBA and you're still struggling with these performance issues. So it sounds like this is a long process. Help us understand the battle that would go on to your mind, even after you were a Christian, about who you were and where your worth and value were found. Right. It's twofold. On one hand, it's realizing that the love of God is constant and unconditional. And the only way that you can do that is in failure. You can easily get on a high of, oh, God loves me. I'm a Christian. Everything is great. And then when something goes wrong, then you learn new things about God and you learn that you can trust God, not only on the mountain, but in the valley. And then at the same time, I say that the next part of that is the way that you see things and the way that you appreciate things where I could say that I'm a Christian, but I can still appreciate my success on the court over what God says about me over the love that God has for me or over my relationship with Christ. And that's something that you have to learn and have to be broken down. But I think the biggest thing that I would say is that God uses people. And so much about the book is about Doc and the church family and my wife and all of the people that were able to rally around me and see greatness in me and show me that unconditional love to where I was really able to trust it more and more and more. But it all came through different instances and a progression. 
Yeah, so you mentioned Doc a couple times, and if I'm pronouncing his name right, it's Daron Hepburn. Is that right? Daron. You can say Daron Hepburn. Daron Hepburn. Okay. And so he is a pastor of a church, but when you first met him, you had no idea that he was a pastor. You were in the league. You'd been the sixth-round draft choice after a quick stop at Florida State. Yeah. How do you meet Doc, as you call him? So I meet Doc in an elevator, and I'm still struggling with these things behind the scenes. But is this your rookie that, year? This is my rookie year. So I get drafted to the NBA. I'm living my life. I'm trying my best to get a hold of everything that I feel like the NBA life has to offer and the world has to offer. And I'm doing it. There were times where I was like, I know I shouldn't be doing this or anything like that, but I was enjoying it. And I get injured on the court. And so I'm not playing right now. And this guy stops me on an elevator one day and says, I can tell you how to be great. And I'm like, tell me how to be great. Okay, well, he says, you have to know Jesus. Now, did he know who you were at this time? Like, did he know you were an NBA player or he just talks to random people on elevators? If you ever meet Doc, you'll see. He just talks to random people. <laughs> elevators. But no, he didn't know who I was. And it was something that we talked about after that meeting that that's what I did. And so he thought I played ball overseas. But yeah, he introduced himself. He said, you know, I can tell you how to be great and that you have to know Jesus. And I was like, man, like in the back of my mind, I'm like, I know Jesus. I'm a Christian, all these different things. But then from that point on, the story just kind of goes like left to right. Like to me, it's a beautiful story of, God just ordering footsteps and things being ordained and ultimately God trying to reveal himself to me and get my attention. And so ultimately later on in the story, it's revealed that Doc is a pastor and I start going to his church and developing a friendship with him. So you're in the NBA, you're hurt, which is tough because here you're the one that the organization has pinned their hopes on. I mean, you're their top draft choice and you're sitting out your teammates. You're not connecting with them much because you're doing rehab while they're playing, practicing, traveling, all that stuff. Did that kind of reignite some of the insecurities that you had dealt with, the anxiety that you had dealt with, you know, the injury, the being disconnected from the teammates, all that stuff? Did that reignite some of those insecurities? Absolutely. And I wouldn't even say reignite. I would say they were already there. Like even with getting drafted to the NBA with the mindset of developing my relationship with Christ. So it was still constant. I was still the number six draft pick, but I was still dealing with those same insecurities. And now just at a higher level because this is the NBA. So now we have the fans and we have the media and we have all those people who can say, oh, Jonathan Isaac is a bust. He's not who we thought he was. And so all of those things are playing in my mind and my heart, like, oh, the city's not going to like me anymore if I don't play well, this, then the third. And then I get injured. And so now there's that rift with me and my teammates. And I obviously want to fit in with them. I want them to like me, but now I'm not so much in the picture. And so it was definitely a tough time. Yeah. So I think all that sets up well to talk about your choice to stand when your teammates were kneeling. It's hard to put ourselves back in that moment, but it was a high intensity moment in our country. The pandemic had started. People were scared of that. The NBA had canceled its season and then ended up moving into the bubble down at Disney. George Floyd had been killed. And there was this intense pressure that we've got to do something. We've got to say something to stand up for this. It sounded like some of the individuals in the NBA, some of the players started to say, hey, we need to come together and make a statement that Black Lives Matter. And as you hear all this conversation going on, what's going through your mind? So we have to back up just a little bit because there was so much time of growing and having little moments of facing fear, facing anxiety, and building that courage on the inside of me with trusting God at his word and trusting who he is in a relationship with him that led to this moment of standing. Tell us about one of those. You're talking about when you preached, maybe? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when I preached, when I had that conversation with one of my teammates, all those times were like little moments of like, 
I'm still as terrified as I ever was, but you know what? I'm trusting God in this situation. And so being able to preach for the first time <laughs> was crazy. And it was the little moment of like, I'm standing, I'm learning how to trust God. And it ultimately led in this big culmination of being able to stand in the bubble. But around the time of what happened to George Floyd, what I tried my best to do was just take a step back and say, what can I add to this conversation? What is the best way to go about this? And as we get into the bubble, there is a pressure for everybody to kneel for the national anthem in the Word of Black Lives Matter t-shirt, especially as guys started to talk about it. Guys wanted to make a statement and make a stand as a solution. They said, you know what? We see what's going on in our society when it comes to racism and we want to do this. And so in taking a step back, I'm saying, man, I can't think of a better remedy or antidote to all the problems that we see, not just racism that plague the hearts of men. I can't think of a better antidote to that than the gospel, you know, to change the hearts of men. It's not going to be an organization. It's not going to be a movement. It's not going to be a moment of protest or anything like that that's going to change the hearts of men. It's going to be Christ. And so I decided that I didn't want to go along with anybody's narrative or what anybody was painting as the right way to go about things. So I decided to be the only one to stand and pretty much declare that same message that, listen, we all fall short of God's glory. We all do things that are wrong. And this is a wrong moment that was caught on camera and obviously exploded. But we all need grace and we all need mercy and we all fall short. And if we all humble ourselves and ultimately love each other the way that God loves us, which is in spite of our sin, in spite of our faults, then we could make real progress and have real change. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So I obviously respect that, and I agree with everything you just said. But my guess is that there were people who were saying to you, can't you do both? Can't you wear the Black Lives Matter t-shirt, kneel, and believe that Jesus is the ultimate solution to these problems? I'm guessing, but I really don't know. I'm just guessing there's something about either the organization, Black Lives Matter, or something about kneeling that kind of turned you off so that you felt like you couldn't do both. Yeah, well, it was just the tone of the message that I didn't agree with as well. It was like, part of the way that I saw it is they made it seem that the only way that you can 
show that you care about Black lives in this moment is to do what we tell you to do. And that is to kneel for the national anthem and wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. That's the only way to support Black lives. And I felt like in the moment, it was like, because of what happened to George Floyd, we now have the moral high ground because of what happened. And so now we can get everyone to do exactly what we want them to do until we want them to stop. And, you know, you saw that on social media, you saw that with posting Black Squares, you saw that with all these organizations coming out and needing to pledge their allegiance to the Black Lives Matter movement. So it was just something that I didn't agree with. And even talking about the organization, I didn't agree with their principles or where they were coming from or the tone of their message. I think that time could have been a time of healing and bringing people together in love, but I felt that it was divisive. To me, putting on the t-shirt was to co-sign the Black Lives Matter organization and the heartbeat and the spirit of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's not something that I agreed with. So just think, you're a guy who's dealt with anxiety, trying to fit in, trying to be accepted, trying to be approved of your whole life. And now here in this crucial moment, your life has been changed by Christ. You've seen him be faithful to you in all the small ways that now you have the courage. I'm sure you were nervous about it. I'm sure you were anxious, <laughs> scared to death. Yeah. But, but teams have to stick together, right? I mean, you have to be family on a team. You have to have each other's back. You have to look out for one another. And here you are, you're kind of this young superstar on the rise. You're a guy though, who's also struggled with injuries and your teammates my guess is that some of them resented you for this. They weren't happy because you weren't being the family. You weren't being a part of the team. And part of you probably craved their acceptance. Walk us through that. I mean, my guess is your teammates' reaction was harder than the public's reaction. Yeah, for sure. And it was tough. And I really don't even think people understand like how high intensity the moment was for standing in the aftermath as well. Like I didn't sleep the night before. I was on the phone with my pastor the night before telling him like, I don't think you understand how big this is going to be. I hadn't signed my contract yet, my contract extension. I hadn't signed it yet. And so that could have possibly been wiped out. You know, people were getting canceled left and right for saying different things during that time. It was tough. And, you know, I expected there to be a negative reaction. One side wanted to make everything about it completely political. The other side, I was a coon and an Uncle Tom. And so it was just a tough moment. Did that come from your teammates or just people outside? Or were your own teammates divided about your choices? Well, I'll get to that. But the coon and Uncle Tom was more like social media and all that stuff. But after I stood detailed in the book as well, there's a moment where we have a team meeting. A team meeting is called by the players. And they're like, you know, we got to talk about this. And what I did understand is that it was a very emotional moment. You know, you had guys who really did believe in the organization, the movement. And to them, I was hijacking the movement. I was making the moment about me. And so we had a heated conversation. But one of the things that I progressed to them was like, look, you guys knelt for what you believed in. And I stood for what I believed in. I see the same things that you see. And I'm not saying that there's not racism. I'm not saying that black lives don't matter. I'm just saying that I don't believe the answer to be what you guys believe the answer to be. I said, I respected you guys' choice in kneeling. And I just asked for that same respect in return. So we were able to leave in a state of, I guess, agree to disagree, but it was something in me where it was like, I wish they understood and I wish they saw my heart in it. But because it was such a heated moment, it was hard to do so. One of the most amazing things is that after that game, you go to the press conference and you're sitting there and you get your mask on and all and a reporter starts the press conference. I think it was the first question, at least the best I can tell, and says, hey, you didn't wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. You didn't kneel during the national anthem. Do you think Black Lives Matter? It was just a stunning question to you, a black man. You were probably caught off guard. I actually really was. I really was caught off guard. And as I had more time to think about it, and even in writing the book, it really did show how crazy the times were and even how political things had gotten. It's like, 
man, like, you know, you being black is not enough to say that you believe that Black Lives Matter or you had to show your allegiance to this moment and this movement by doing this. And that was your, I guess, your calling card to care about Black Lives was to wear this T-shirt and kneel for the national anthem. And if you didn't, even if you were black, your allegiance was questioned. It was just tough, but I think it just showed how crazy things had gotten that that would be the first question where she felt like she would have to ask that of me. If I could switch gears just for a second here, I've had the opportunity to talk with Michael Porter Jr. He went to the church that I'm a pastor of, and his dad is on staff with our church. Not to cut you off, but I'm actually about to hang with Mike tomorrow. Oh, are you really? Yeah, so he and I have had this same conversation, and I asked him a question that I really want to ask you too, if it's okay. So how much of your professional success do you attribute to hard work and good choices? And how much of your professional success do you attribute to luck? You know, I wouldn't even call it luck. You know, obviously I worked really hard and, you know, made some right choices, but I made a lot of wrong choices too. And so now that I've developed a relationship with Christ and I have kind of hindsight is 2020, I wouldn't call it luck, but I know that ultimately God was ordering my steps, even in the time that I wasn't checking for him, even in the time that I wasn't believing in him in order for me to get to this moment of having a relationship with him. But I would say a huge part of it is to me entitled to his grace and his mercy and me getting to this moment and not just because of all the hard work that I put in, because yes, I made right decisions, but I made a ton of bad ones as well. They didn't take me out. Well, I like that answer. So you're changing it a little bit and from luck to grace. And of course, I put it luck to be more provocative. I think grace is a good way to think about it. But it really does shape how you live your life. If you think that you have accomplished everything because of you or if you've accomplished it because you've been given this by God, like it's part of his kindness towards you. It causes you to not look down on other people. It causes you to be more gracious to help people who are struggling. So I think you're saying that God has been gracious to you. And Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. You've been blessed with a lot of talent. You've got a great wife. You've got a good family. You've got financial resources. You've got a great church community. Do you feel the weight of the responsibility to use God's gifts to you, you know, wisely? You know, absolutely. And that's something that my pastor, Doc, in the book has actually, we've had a lot of conversations about that behind the scenes. But I think even more now with this book coming out and people pouring in about how it's helping them and inspiring them and encouraging them, I'm starting to feel the weight of this is a responsibility and it is something to tend to and to steward properly and well I just lean on the people that I have in my corner. Like, you know, Doc is so much more than just like my pastor. He's a friend and a mentor and somebody that I can lean on. And, you know, obviously my wife and my church family, my family for that matter as well. But yeah, I would say I definitely recognize that I'm here for more than just playing basketball. It's a sentiment that I've grown in as I've continued to progress and have seen God's purpose for my life get bigger and bigger and bigger. I became a Christian in college. It didn't grow up in a Christian home. And a large part of why I became a Christian is I started looking at the lives of the people around me in the fraternity house I was in, and I just saw their lives were pretty empty, that all the things they were chasing were the same things that I was chasing in my life. And I could see where my life was going to be, you know, four or five years down the road if I kept going down and making the same choices that I'd been making. Eventually, that kind of leads me to put my faith in Christ and follow Jesus. Right now, you have what I think almost everyone would say is a dream life. You've got everything that people would want, success, fame, wealth. Has that fame, has that wealth made you happier? I would say happier in the immediate, most superficial ways, but not in anything that's deep and lasting. And one of the things that I tell all the young people, the young basketball players that I get a chance to talk to, is that I really thought that I was living. 
When I first got drafted in the league, I was so excited. I was so happy to live the life that I thought that everybody wanted to have. But it didn't take long for me to have moments of taking a step back and say, you know, what are you doing? Who are you? And I did have a deep sense of being unfulfilled and chasing not only the world in a sense, but chasing the validation and approval of others. What I found is that when Jesus said that he came, that we may have life and have life more abundantly, it really is the truth. And now that I've developed a relationship with Christ and have seen my life grow and change and I'm married and all these different things, I'm like, man, this is the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And it's not because of resources and, and all those things. All those things are great. And I thank God for them and they're a blessing, but I would trade them all to keep my relationship with Christ because that is what has helped me to become who I am today. Do you have difficulty merging this NBA life with this Christian life, devoted to Christ's life? Do you find that those are in conflict with one another? Are there expectations on you as an NBA player that make it hard to be faithful to Christ? Or have you figured out that, you know, it's pretty easy to be a Christian in the NBA? You know, it was a struggle. It was a struggle early on because there was still that part of me that was like, I want to fit in with my teammates. I want to do this. I want to do that. And the tide of me that was like, okay, I want to start developing this relationship with God and do right and please him. And so those things were in constant battle inside of me. But I would say today and just the ways that I've grown it, it's become not easy, but it's become easier. Because I know what it is that I believe and I'm more comfortable within myself. I'm more comfortable with my beliefs and being around other people. And so you know, I just try my best to live my life out. You know, I'm not the one that's going to go to my teammate and tell him that he's a sinner and preach to him. But I'm going to be the one that's going to call them when times get tough and go sit with them and try my best to continue to develop relationships with them and just live my life out that way. And I found that that works for me. Yeah, it's definitely gotten easier to just kind of be myself and not want the approval and not need the approval of the people around me. Are you a trash talker? Uh, not really. <laughs> Have you ever been? I've never been. And I'll say what part of it is because of I never wanted to hurt anybody. And so when I was younger and I was on the court, like this gives you a moment, like we were in practice. I was in practice when I played for ISB and there was another kid on our team and you know, the coach had us going one-on-one -on -one. and the only way that you could get off the court was to get a stop. So I had the ball and this other kid was guarding me. And if I scored, he would have to guard me again and again and again and again. And this is in high school? This is in high school. Yes. Until he stopped me. <laughs> and I kept scoring on him and scoring on him and scoring on him. And the coach is getting rowdy. The players are getting rowdy and all that stuff. And I felt so bad. And so I missed the shot on purpose so he could get it stopped. <laughs> and so it was always something on inside of me. I didn't want to hurt anybody. Didn't want anybody to feel bad. So I was never one to really talk a lot of trash about anybody. But I would say as I've progressed and grown, it's been more about just like showing just about like, I would rather be a silent killer <laughs> on the court, you know, than somebody who makes a lot of noise. I love it. Jonathan, Isaac, we really appreciate your time. I would encourage you to pick up his book, Why I Stand. It's about the stand, but it's about a lot more. And you can tell he's got a lot on his heart. What are you working on next? You got another book in the works or what? I do have another book in the works, but it's early. It's super early. It's going to be called It's Bigger Than Basketball. Okay. And there's even a lot of talks around turning Why I Stand into a movie. Who's going to play you? Are you going to play yourself in the movie? Somebody's going to play me early on, but we're still trying to figure out the point of where I would pick up and play myself. Because people aren't going to be able to play basketball like you play basketball. So you're going to have to do <laughs> right. that part, right? Right. But yeah, it's exciting. I want to see where God takes it. But I would just echo your encouragement for people to grab the book. It is so much more than just about standing in the bubble or refusing the vaccine. It's about my story and my journey and how I got here and how God brought the right people into my life and how I was able to battle anxiety and fear and insecurity through developing a relationship with Christ and a relationship with people who were Christ lovers. And so go grab it. Yeah. And we didn't even get into the vaccine stuff. You can pick up the book and read that. But 
Jonathan, would you close our time? Would you just pray? Would you mind doing that? Praying that we would find our satisfaction in Christ or whatever you want to pray for. Yeah. Father God, Lord Jesus, thank you for this podcast. Thank you for this time. Lord, we just ask that you would just continue to help us and just help us to see you for who you are and to see what a relationship with you is is so much better than anything we could ever have. If we have you that we've won in life and we don't need things, we don't need accolades, we don't need the the approval and validation of others, Lord God, to set us where we need to be. And so I just, I I cover this podcast under your precious blood, Lord God, the people that are going to hear it, help encourage them, inspire them, that as the days, Lord God, get darker, that the need to be able to stand for what you believe in is only going to become more necessary, but also more harder to do. And so I would just encourage everyone to trust you at your word, to to continue to follow you, continue to find strength in in who you are um, in your spirit. So we just cover it now. Well, God, we pray for the families, Lord God, that are going through this tragedy, Lord God, that happened this week, um, that's happened over the coming weeks, Lord God. We cover them under your precious, but we pray comfort to their hearts and their minds, Lord God, as they go through this. Um, And we just pray, Lord God, that we would continue to be the light of the world for all men to see um, and draw people closer and closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.